Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Lisa Dickey is an author and ghostwriter. With 17 published nonfiction books, eight were New York Times bestsellers. A Russian scholar, she began her writing career in 1994 in St. Petersburg. In the fall of 1995, she had an opportunity to travel across the whole of Russia, interviewing people from all walks of life in 11 different cities, from Vladivostok to St. Petersburg. And in 2005 and 2015, she made the entire trip again, interviewing all the same people to find out how their lives had changed. These stories are now collected in her newest book, Bears in the Streets. She recently wrote about Putin's expulsion of workers at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow for the New York Times, because the same thing happened in the late 1980s, and Lisa Dickey was there. The piece was called When I Replace Soviet Workers in the U.S. Embassy. She joins me now for a closer look. Lisa, before we start talking about your book, tell us the story of how you ended up working at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and what was it like? What did you learn about international relations? Well, the way that I got that job was uh, there used to be Soviet workers, um, and they had been ex- uh, expelled in the late 1980s uh, after a series of diplomatic tit-for-tats. And so suddenly there were uh, there was nobody to do things like work as a nanny or be a janitor or work in the cafeteria at the U.S. Embassy Moscow. And so those positions ended up getting filled by young Americans like me who were interested in coming and living in Moscow uh, in the late 1980s during the Soviet era. So that's how I actually got that position to start with. Now it's um, 1990. Now it's 1995, yeah. and you're 27 years old and living in St. Petersburg, trying to be a journalist but not selling any stories. Then you see an right. ad from a photographer. Tell us how this book project started. So initially, it wasn't a book project at all. It was this photographer had an idea of going across the country and taking black and white photographs and doing sort of an intimate portrait series of ordinary Russians. And he needed someone to go with him who spoke Russian and could, you know, just take off and travel for three months across Russia. And I had been, you know, living in Russia at the time and, and wasn't didn't have a job. And so I wrote to him and he, he chose me to go with him and we went across the country and actually did a website um, covering ordinary Russians across the country. Now, the first trip in 1995, you didn't have any dough, and you didn't know who no, you would meet. <laughs> now, how hard was that trip, and what did you learn? Well, 
it was just a super shoestring affair, really. You know, I mean, Gary had a little bit of money that he had gotten from a couple of, of uh, places, nonprofits, a nonprofit in France, and Kodak, I think, had given us some money. And so he ended up uh, saying to me, basically, you got to find us places to stay with Russians across the country. And so I would just ask people in each city, hey, do you know anybody in the next town over who might be willing to put up a couple of Americans? Well, in 2005, you returned to Russia. Who financed the second trip, and what was your purpose then? So uh, for the second trip, I decided it would be interesting to go back and talk to all the people, as many as I could find from the first trip. Uh, and the second trip actually was a partnership with WashingtonPost.com, who agreed to run my uh, writings, and then I took another photographer with me and his photographs uh, on WashingtonPost.com for 11 weeks. How many of the people that you met in 1995 were you able to see again in 2005? Really, most of them, surprisingly. And, you know, there wasn't really much of anything in the way of emails that they had or the Internet to speak of in 1995 for most of the people I met. So I just had all these handwritten names, numbers, and addresses written down, and I would just go back and call the numbers I had and stop by at the addresses and see if I could find them. But really, most of the people that we had written about in any substantive way from that first trip, I was able to actually track down and find on the second trip. And you wrote that of all the changes, nothing prepared you for what Moscow had become. What do you mean? Moscow was so different between 1995 and 2005, and particularly Moscow was really different from the first time I had seen it in 1988 when I had lived and worked at the U.S. Embassy. I mean, in 1988, it was just this sort of gray, dour, boring city. And then in 2005, suddenly the Russian economy was doing so much better and money was just flooding in from the oil economy. And Moscow was just this gleaming, you know, spruced up city. And it was just really apparent that there was a lot more money at play there than there had been. Now, in 2005, you had uh, an iPhone and Skype. Did technology make a difference? Uh, in 2015, we had we had the iPhone and the Skype. Um, in 2005, we mostly relied on just you know regular internet, dial-up internet from various internet cafes, uh, and then also we would go to the telephone and telegraph office. Or actually, the telephone and telegraph office was in 1995, but in 2005, you could use. Uh, phone cards to dial home. But yeah, in 2015, it was just, there was just no comparison to be able to have an iPhone. And at one point I was FaceTiming while standing on a boat on Lake Baikal. And I just thought, I can't believe how absurdly easy this is now compared to how difficult everything was, particularly in 1995. Lisa, the title of your book, Bears in the Streets, what does that mean? So what that refers to is on that third trip in 2015, uh, about two days into the trip, a woman said to me, oh, you Americans all think we just have bears wandering in the streets here, which I thought was kind of funny, and I hadn't really heard that before. And I kind of filed it away. And then in five or six different cities along the way, as I kept traveling, Russian people kept saying this to me. And I thought, what is, where is this coming from? I, I need to understand where this is coming from. Uh, and what I came up with was it, it was basically shorthand for their saying, you don't respect us. You think we're backwards. You think we're not as evolved as you. And there seemed to be a real chip on a lot of people's shoulders about that, particularly on this third trip. You know, you also uh, talked about what the real Siberia is. An American usually hears that word and thinks of prisons and ice-cold, barren land. What is that what you found when you went there? 
certainly a lot of that in Siberia. I mean, there's no no question about that. But, you know, on when I was going through Russian Far East, so Vladivostok, Birbijan, um, and then into Siberia, Irkutsk, Novosibirsk, those types of places. You know, I, when I started the trip in early uh, September, it was quite warm and it was really quite beautiful. Uh, and there's a lot of, of beautiful land in Siberia and there's a lot of great things to see. And so I think, you know, often in Americans' minds, we have this notion that Russia is just a vast frozen wasteland. And that was certainly not my, my experience. That's not what I found. About your first trip, you write that over 12 weeks, we travel 5,000 miles and had approximately 6,000 vodka shots. Serious question. (laughs) Could you have bonded so easily if you were not able to throw down vodka shots with your hosts? I mean, I think it certainly helps to be able to have a drink with one's host, and I think that's probably true in any culture. Um, there were certainly times when, you know, I was with people who didn't drink, um, and, you know, I was able to bond with them as well. But, yeah, you know, drinking is definitely a popular pastime, certainly among the people in Russia that I was spending time with. So, On your first trip in 1995, you wanted to write about gay li- life in Russia. What did you find? Uh, we interviewed a group of friends who were living in Novosibirsk, and they agreed to let us just sort of follow them around and interview them and take pictures of them and, and put them up on the website that we had made. Uh, and basically, you know, we found a group of people who kept to themselves in terms of, you know, how out or open they were, uh, but who nonetheless seemed to be living, you know, living the lives that they wanted to be living apart from the secrecy factor. Um, you know, it, it was... Uh, I mean, it's certainly difficult to generalize about gay life in Russia based on this one particular group of friends. But in 1995, it did seem that they had found a community and were and were relatively happy in their existence. When you told them that you were gay, did they react in the same fashion as if one of their compatriots said the same thing? I think, you know, there was definitely that sort of shorthand of like, oh, okay, so you get it, you know. I mean, I think that certainly if a couple of American journalists are coming through your town and saying, hey, we're looking for gay people to write about, it makes a difference to be able to say, you know, I'm actually gay too. I'm not just coming here to exploit you or to to write something that's going to be trying to expose you in some fashion. The anti-gay propaganda laws were passed in 2013. This change in any way that you handled yourself on the last trip in 2015? Yeah, the, the 2013 law uh, that was passed was was of some concern to me uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, it's not illegal in theory to be gay, but it's illegal to propagandize, meaning to talk about being gay or to broadcast it in some fashion. And on my third trip, when I was going across, I had made the decision that since I was married now, that I was actually going to tell the people that I was you know, meeting with and talking to that I was. If they asked me if I was married, I was going to say yes, that I was, and I was married to a woman. And so my fear was less about, are they going to freak out? Are they going to hate me? Than it was, am I going to get in some sort of legal trouble for doing this, for going across the country and doing that? And I did not encounter any kind of legal difficulty, which was which was a good thing. Did you ever feel that the Russian government was watching you on any or all of your trips? Um, I don't know whether they were or not. If they did, they were very subtle about it. Um, that was a concern of mine also. And it's, you know, I mean, who, who knows, really, ultimately, in the end. Um, but I was able to go and talk to the people that I was wanting to talk to and do the traveling that I wanted to do. And so I was very, very happy that I was able to go ahead and do that on all three trips. Is there anyone that you still keep in touch with after your last trip? 
Yeah, it's actually funny. You know, after the first trip, I thought, well, you know, I'm never going to see these people again. They all live in these far-flung places, and there was, you know, they didn't have any email, and, you know, there wasn't any way to stay in touch with them, so I figured I'd probably never see them again. And then after this third trip, you know, most of them are on social media in one form or another, on Instagram or on, uh, on Facebook, and so I'm actually connected to a lot of them in that way. Now, what are the biggest misconceptions that the Russians have about the Americans? You've commented on American misperceptions about Russians. How does it go the other way? Well, you know, I, I would say that they have fewer misconceptions about us than we do about them for the, for the simple reason that they actually get a lot of American television shows, movies, you know, reporting in their magazines about, you know, American TV stars, that kind of thing. I mean, they see, they see, uh, you know, movies and TV about life in America all the time. And we almost never see, you know, I had a Russian say to me, well, what are the American people's favorite Russian television shows? And I had to say, well, we don't really watch any, you know, we just don't, that's not just not a thing that we see. So I would say in terms of misperceptions, you know, they're, they probably have a clearer idea of who we are than, than most Americans have an idea of who they are. Why wouldn't they allow Americans to get a better look at what Russians really are? And how do they do this? I'm just curious to know how they accomplish that. Well, I'm not sure. You know, I don't I don't think that the Russian people necessarily have, you know, I think they'd love for the Americans to know a little bit more about them. I think that, you know, Russian filmmakers make some great movies, but we very rarely get them on these shores. Um, I think that there's not been a great deal of interest probably for a long time on the part of Americans and who the Russian people really are. You know, we tend to think of them as, you know, I know I grew up in the 80s and all the villains and all the movies were Russians and they were all these sort of ice cold automatons, essentially. And I think a lot of times, you know, I'll speak at universities now and even with young people, I'll say, you know, what do you think of when you think of Russians? And I, you know, the, the young Americans will say things like, well, they're cold, they're unhappy, they're unfriendly. And that's just, that's the image that we seem to have of them. And it's not really true. By the time you got back to Russia for your third visit in 2015, Putin is all powerful. How do Russians feel about him? The Russian people that I spoke with on this 2015 trip, for the most part, and again, this is an anecdotal sample, but I will say that the vast majority of them really love Putin. Um, and when I say this, sometimes it surprises people, but I, I think it shouldn't for two reasons. Number one, if you think about it, you know, there's only really been three leaders of Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. Boris Yeltsin, who was a kind of an, un, just an unqualified disaster, and then Putin and Dmitry Medvedev, who's essentially Putin's right-hand guy. So if you look at the, the lives of the ordinary Russians, if you compare them from 1995 when Yeltsin was in office to 2005 and 2015, when it was basically, uh, you know, Putin, then, you know, you see that their lives did really improve a great deal. So that's, that's reason number one. Reason number two, of course, is that, you know, Putin has consolidated power over a lot of the media. And a lot of what Russian people watch on their televisions and their television news is, is very pro-Putin. It's very pro-Kremlin. Uh, and, and so people are getting a, a bit more of a one-sided view about what's going on. So these two things in combination make it not really surprising that Russians would, would love Vladimir Putin to the degree which they, which they seem to do. In 2015, the U.S. supported a free Ukraine. How did the Russians feel about that? There 
was a mixture of, uh, I talked a lot with people on the 2015 trip about this, and a lot of them, most of them that I spoke with had the feeling of or expressed to me, we don't know why America cares what goes on between Russia and Ukraine anyway. Their feeling was was that there's a millennia-long history between Russia and Ukraine that, that, you know, an outsider like the United States couldn't hope to understand, and why were we concerning ourselves with it? Um, so I got a lot of that from people where they would say, you know, how can you possibly understand the depth of this history and why are you interfering? Now, you visited small villages as well as big cities. Is there an urban-rural divide in politics and culture like there is in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, you know, and it's interesting when you, when you think about, you know, how do the Russians feel about Putin? You know, for example, you can also say, you know, you get one kind of answer in cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, and you get another kind of answer elsewhere, meaning just that there's a level of sophistication about politics and about what's going on in the rest of the world in the bigger cities, uh, you know, more so than there is perhaps in the countryside. I think that's true in almost any country. I think it's certainly true also here. You probably get different kinds of answers if you ask people questions in the middle of Manhattan or the middle of Washington, D.C., than you do if you go out, you know, to the middle of the country or to smaller towns. Now, you're right that almost everyone you met had disdain for President Obama. Why was that? The level of disdain that people had for President Obama was just really astonishing to me. It went beyond, it wasn't just, oh, we don't think he's a very good president, or, oh, we don't like him very much. It was just this sort of disgust, like, I, you know, how could you possibly have ever elected a person like that? And I think it's, it, you know, again, I think it's a large part of it is the, the kind of media coverage that they see of him that is coming, you know, pretty much controlled by the Kremlin. And so, you know, they, they would have these situations where, you know, I had one woman say to me, well, Barack Obama's terrible because he did this, that, and the other thing at some meeting with Vladimir Putin, and it was a thing I had never heard of, but she, you know, recited it as though this was a this was something that everybody in the world knew. And I just thought, well, this is interesting. This is what she's hearing, and this is what is coloring her perception. But I, I really saw that so much across the country. I've got to ask, knowing what you do about Putin and how things work in Russia, what involvement do you think the Russian government had in our 2016 election? I like to not sort of delve into that too much. My whole point with this trip, with all of these trips, was just let's talk about the 144 million Russians that are not named Vladimir Putin, because so much of what we get in this country about Russia is about Putin and it is about the Kremlin. And I, I think that it's it's fascinating to look beyond that to see, like, so who are these people? And you can, you know, extrapolate it and say, well, who are these people and why is he so popular? But, you know, in terms of what the government did and what Putin did in terms of our own election and stuff, I don't have any, you know, inside information on that. So I prefer to just sort of focus on the people. Now, you've helped write 17 nonfiction books, Lisa, for people in politics, business, entertainment, and international relations. Is it fair to say that you're a generalist with a lot of curiosity and great listening skills? <laughs> well, it's certainly fair to say that I am a generalist with a lot of curiosity. I mean, I've been doing this as a career for a long time, and one of the things that I was careful to do was I never wanted to get pigeonholed into, oh, I'm the, you know, the one who helped people write just business books or just political books. I always wanted to find whatever the most interesting collaboration was that I could. And I just, I'm just fascinated at being able to learn things and just delve deeply into things with people who are absolute experts on them. That's just, that's one of the most fun things about, about doing that as a living. 
In your most mm -hmm. recent book, Then Comes Marriage, you help mm -hmm. lawyer Roberta Kaplan write her story about bringing Edie Windsor's case against the Defense of Marriage Act to the Supreme Court. Was Roberta Kaplan the right person for this fight? Would we have marriage rights for all now without her? I think Roberta Kaplan was, was clearly the right person for this fight because she won, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I'm sure there are other reasons as well. I think she's been a magnificent spokesperson for, you know, the rights of gay people. She's been, you know, also handling other cases in addition to and since the Edie Windsor case. Um, so, boy, you, you really can't quibble with success. I mean, she's done a fantastic job and she's been wonderful for our community. And she's, she's a, it's wonderful to have her, uh, you, know, you know, fighting this fight. You collaborated on a book with California Lieutenant Governor and former Mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, called Citizenville, about how citizens can influence government through technology. What do you think of him? Does he have fresh ideas? I mean, I think, yeah, I think he was a great mayor of San Francisco. I think he does have fresh ideas. I think the fact that he was willing to go out and, and write a book about, you know, how are we using technology in governance and how can we do it better shows that he was very forward thinking on that matter. Do you so, think you he'll know, be I, the I next think, governor? I hope he'll be the next governor. I, I'm definitely supporting him. I definitely hope that uh, I think he would be a great governor of California. Does he have national ambitions? No, I can't tell you. I have no idea. You'll have to ask him that. <laughs> Another important book you collaborated on was the story of a woman who was held captive by North Korea. Since North Korea is in the news again, do you have any insights for us into this closed society from your work on this book? Yeah, you know, what was fascinating about working with Yuna Lee on her book was just, uh, you know, obviously she spent five months there um, being held essentially under house arrest, um, and she saw firsthand what it was like to be there, how she was treated as essentially a prisoner. Um, and, you know, I obviously in speaking with her and hearing all of that firsthand and helping her to get that on the page, you know, I was able to gain some understanding of, uh, you know, how, how closed down everything is over there. Um, it's really worth reading that book, actually. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a really fascinating insight into a country that obviously is very important to all of us now. If you were going to ghostwrite another book whose story hasn't been told, uh, would that be interesting to you? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I always, I, when I'm looking at projects to potentially collaborate on, you know, I'm always interested in, is does this book, would this book tell a part of history that hasn't been told yet? Or would this book be putting something out into the narrative that people haven't heard yet, a side people hadn't heard? Or how does it advance how what we're thinking about things or how we're, we're working on things? And uh, I, I'm always looking for something that's advancing the narrative in some form. What What's your next project? Can you discuss it with us? I cannot. <laughs> I am working on something, but it's, uh, it's uh, under wraps. Well, tell me about a city you visited for the book called Kazan, the city you say is the most beautiful after St. Petersburg. I do think, I was actually hoping when you said tell me about the city, and then I hope that you would say Kazan, because I do think Kazan is just truly fascinating as a city. It's the capital of Tatarstan, and so it's a majority Muslim population. And it's at the confluence of two rivers, but the most, the most, fascinating thing about it to me is there's an ancient Russian Kremlin. Uh, people don't often realize this, but the Kremlin, the word Kremlin in Russian essentially means four. 
not not just the one Kremlin that's in uh, Moscow. There are Kremlins all over Russia. And so there's a beautiful, beautifully restored Kremlin that's in Kazan. And it uh, now has, as of 2005, it has a uh, a beautiful, gleaming new mosque inside it. And it's just such an extraordinary thing to see. It's at the top of the hill by these two rivers with this, you know, this classic Russian architecture. And then inside it, these, you know, domes and, and minarets of a mosque. It's just a really extraordinary sight. You're an entertaining storyteller, but I have a feeling you had a bigger reason for doing this book. Was it really important to you that you tell us all the story of what you regard to be the real Russian people? Yeah, I really, I just, I feel like, I mean, first of all, I've just been treated with such incredible uh, generosity uh, and warmth by the Russian people that I've met over all of these many years. Um, and, and I just, I feel like that we don't really have an understanding of who the Russian people are. Just wanted to sort of put that out into the world and just say, you know, people may have their misconceptions, again, with, you know, the bears in the streets, but we don't, it, it, it just, I wanted to be able to show people particularly in this country, to just say, like, look, this is, this is who they are. These are the kinds of things they think about. Um, John Steinbeck actually wrote a book called A Russian Journal back in the late 1940s. He went across Russia with, um, with Robert Kappa, the photographer, and he did something very similar. And uh, I actually opened my book with a quote from his book that, that says something like, uh, I can't, I'm not going to remember exactly what it, what it says, but it's basically something like, uh, uh, you know, in the newspapers every day we were reading all about Russia, but nobody was writing the things that I wanted most of all to know about Russia. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to just put it out there. These are what the people are like, and this is what everyday life is like. To just make some sort of connection, a people-to-people connection in that way. As a longtime book collaborator, she's helped clients write 17 published nonfiction books, including eight New York Times bestsellers. Her new book is all her own, Bears in the Street. It tells the story of three trips across Russia, interviewing the same people from Vladivostok to St. Petersburg to see how their lives changed over time, an emotional and entertaining travelogue that reveals the true Russian personality. Lisa Dicka, thanks. Lisa Dickey, thanks for joining us. By the way... Thank you, Arthur. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.